folks, welcome. Welcome. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, give it up for us. You don't know what you're clapping for yet, but I appreciate the confidence. That's all right. You can clap. Go ahead. It's like a Jeb Bush moment. You remember that? He told people to clap, uh, whether they like to or not. So we're, we're replaying that for your pleasure or displeasure. Listen, we are, we are live on 96.3 Ohm Radio, which is a community-powered, low-band radio station here that folks across the greater Charleston area can get if they still listen to radio, which, believe it or not, is still thousands of people. We repackage this, as you may know, if you've been here to the first two iterations of this series, as our uh, uh, live podcast uh, coming from Low Country Local First, which is the organization I work for. Thank you for being here. We really cherish this partnership as one of the many partnerships that we at Low Country Local First have with community organizations and community enterprises and nonprofits and academic institutions. The one we have with College of Charleston's MBA program is really special, and I've loved to see it grow over the last couple of years, and Seton Brown and Aaron Halford and Aaron Fornadel have helped make that happen as well, and you all have helped make that happen by coming out to these events. Um, I know this was maybe part of your mandatory programming for you all. I've heard that through the grapevine. Nothing like a captive audience when you're up on stage. Um, but we're going to make it fun, right, with a couple of wines, a couple of beers, uh, and a whole lot of jokes about business analytics. Just kidding. I don't want to overpromise, but I swear we're going to make this topic tonight as sexy and appealing and vibrant and relevant for you all as possible. So again, thank you all for being here. I am Steve Fletcher, the Director of Economic Development at Low Country Local First, a 16-year-old local economic development 501c3 based right here in Charleston that exists to ensure that our small businesses of all different shapes, sizes, stages, ages, industries, verticals thrive tomorrow, the tomorrow after tomorrow, the tomorrow after tomorrow's tomorrow, you know, years from tomorrow's tomorrow. Uh, the point is we want to make sure they're here flourishing, surviving, thriving, doing really well. We're here to support them through a number of programs networking opportunities, digital offerings, our membership base, innovative uh, opportunities like our Good Enterprises program that helps low to moderate income nascent stage entrepreneurs uh, flourish here in the low country to create generational wealth building. We do a bunch at Low Country Local First, but tonight is about bringing some really interesting, relevant knowledge from a few local business leaders directly to your ears, whether you're listening on the radio at 96.3 or you're here in the house at Queen Street Playhouse. Before we kick things off, and I want to scrape the surface of some of these fine folks' bios up here on stage, but I want to remind everybody you are in a historic theater here in, on the peninsula of downtown Charleston. It has been here for decades and decades and decades. It's currently run by uh, the fantastic duo of Kyle and Brian, who you probably met, friendly faces behind the bar. They make all of this happen. They've brought this back to life. It's a real treat to be able to be here. So please give it up for Queen Street Playhouse, if you wouldn't mind. All right, we're going to do a lot of talking up here, but if you've got any questions in mind, keep those in mind. We're going to make sure we give you 15 minutes at the end for a Q&A, and I know you're going to have some stuff to, to ask of these uh, really, really brilliant minds up on stage. We're super excited about who we have landed for this Small Talks Big Ideas with Steve Live. We've got some great folks up here. To my immediate left, we have Chris Smalls from Metanoia. A fantastic nonprofit, actually, based right here in Charleston. But her background and what she's currently doing at Metanoia is 
squarely in the uh, business analytics domain. Um, and when I say business analytics, and we'll dig into this, it's sort of a broad, generic sounding term. It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I know it's one of the concentrations at the MBA program. So we're gonna make sure we dig into what that means for each, each one of these individuals up here, who by the way are all locally headquartered. They are anchored here in the low country. Their enterprises, their organizations themselves, their families um, are living, breathing, eating here in the low country of South Carolina, which as a local economic development nonprofit is important to us. To Chris's left, we have Kevin Flounders, CEO since 2018 of SIB. Um, they do some really innovative, interesting stuff in the world of cost savings and, and making data-backed decisions in that space. Um, and they've set up some really cool models uh, to make that happen. So I'm looking forward to digging into his story and the story of SIB. Uh, to his left, we've got Megan Frost from Interloop. Uh, Interloop is based right here in the Charleston Tech Center. They are also on any given day drinking from the fire hose of data. Usually it's clients of theirs who have a whole bunch of different data coming in from every angle, different platforms or tools or technology solutions they use. And they've got to make sense of all of those numbers and those uh, numerical quantities, another term for numbers, I was looking for a synonym. Uh, and then they've got to make actionable solutions, right? And they've got to communicate that in effective ways to their clients. And all these folks up on stage, they work with, you know, occasionally other businesses, enterprises, uh, corporations that are, you know, in the low country, but sometimes it's regional, sometimes it's it's across the, the country or, or global. So, uh, you know, your questions can be oriented however you'd like. A lot of these corporations or businesses or nonprofits up here, though they are serving community members, they're also a lot of the time uh, globally oriented as well. So I want to dig into to what we're talking about here, right? Business analytics I mentioned off the top, it can mean different things to different people, right? I, I feel like there's probably not been a more important time to think about this topic now than right now, right? And tomorrow it will probably be even more important ad infinitum. AI is you know, on the tip of everybody's tongue. Some people know a little bit more about what they're talking about than others when they bring up AI and ChatGPT. I don't know that much, so eventually, believe it or not, I am gonna hand the mic over to people who know more than I. But we all know that the future is data in some way, shape, or form, right? We kind of have a lot more of it than we've ever had, I think Megan's website, Interloop's website mentioned somewhere on it, in the last three years, humans have generated more data than they have in the entirety of human civilization leading up to that point. We have troves of numbers that can help us make decisions that are logical and reasonable and save money, right? And so help propel businesses and thereby economies and thereby countries forward. So, this is an exciting topic, I swear. If you're in a, you don't buy it yet, go grab another wine and then we'll talk a little more about it. Just kidding, not uh, encouraging inebriation in order to love business analytics, but it may help. Uh, all right, we're gonna jump over right now, kick it over to these, these folks up on stage because I know I missed some things and I want these folks to hear directly from you, okay? I swear this will be the most you hear from me all night. Chris, tell me a little bit more about Metanoia. Tell me about your journey there before Metanoia as well and sort of tie that personal and professional trajectory to this nebulous term of business analytics, if you would. Sure, so good evening all. Metanoia is a nonprofit organization that is located in North Charleston, South Carolina in the Chakora neighborhood and that is our community um, 
of focus. We have a youth leadership program and we do low income housing and also emergency repairs for members of that community. And we are there to empower that community and just hone in on those individuals and um, who they are and what they do. At Metanoia, I am the business analyst and my responsibility there is to kind of gridlock our processes to make sure that we don't have any holes, that we do things consistently and regularly so when audit seasons come around, we don't get a lot of questions about how we are operating because we are fiscally responsible to our board of directors and to our givers. Um, a lot of people give us a lot of money and we have to make sure that we are using that money the correct way and we are analyzing and using the funds correctly so that we continue to get those charitable donations and stay in business for 20 more years because we celebrated 20 years um, this year. So that's a little bit about what I do and who Metanoia is. Great. So Chris, you're doing a lot of like dotting of the I's, crossing of the T's so that come year's end, your nonprofit is not just solvent, but is sort of abiding by all of the laws that govern 501c3s. And so you're looking at a lot of data, primarily it sounds like financial data and ensuring that everything looks above board. Would that be a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment because if Steve gives us $5,000 and says that we have to use that 5000 not 5, this 000. Steve, by the way. <laughs> I'd like to say I'd get more, right? I mean, currently, I, yeah. Anyway. But if he says we have to use $5,000 in spending on our youth, our auditors are going to ask, when did Steve give this money? How many years did we have to spend it? And how did we document that we spent the $5,000 on our youth? If we don't track that, then Steve is probably going to ask for the money back if that's what his grant said, and Metanoia is gonna be out of that $5,000. So I am making sure that if you scan that credit card or you ask for a check, it's being spent on what Steve said we should spend it on. Right, and Chris and the folks at Metanoia are doing fantastic work and all that needs to be done because uh, Metanoia's mission is essentially to connect folks with attainable and affordable housing. Um, and so none of that can happen. That mission can't be achieved if you're not starting at the beginning and keeping track of everything you're doing and all the money that's coming in and going out, et cetera. So thank you, Chris, appreciate that. Kevin, shifting gears for a moment, uh, Kevin has for years been in the private sector and has um, followed a number of entrepreneurial carrots, if uh, that would be a fair evaluation, and now finds himself heading up a large firm uh, that has an office right here in Charleston um, and does a, does a lot of really cool things. A lot of them are innovative. I'm going to let Kevin kind of take it from here and explain exactly how they do cost savings for uh, other companies and uh, enterprises and how that kind of ties into to the idea of business analytics and, and making data-backed decisions. Yeah, and thank you very much for putting me right next to Chris, who's like saving the world and <laughs> doing amazing things. And, and what SIB does is we look at trash bills, and we want to make trash bills smaller. So, um, yeah, Chris, I, I got to say, I think you're winning on the, as far as like the social side of this. But let me explain a little bit about our company, because I think it's very relevant, and we're a big employer in this area. We're the largest spend management platform. We happen to be located in Charleston, but we have offices up and down both coasts. 
what we do is our clients that are uh, anywhere from mid-market to enterprise clients to uh, private equity-backed portfolio companies will leverage our technologies when they don't have the uh, data, the subject matter experts, or the time to manage their spend in a bunch of areas that are prone to like erroneous invoicing and price creep. I bring up trash because trash is one of them, but we look in every areas of supply chain, logistics, telecommunication, technology, waste, uh, third-party payroll processing, and a bunch of really, really, really boring things, but we have a very interesting company. Uh, and why I think it's so relevant that we're talking about all the things here, specifically because of who the audience is, we have about 600 employees. Uh, we have a captive in India. We have a captive in the Philippines. Our next 100 hires that we're going to do, uh, we're going to do probably 80 of them will be in the Charleston area. And um, most importantly, of those 100 next hires that we're going to make, Outside of relationship people, they would be like account management people, salespeople, things like that. Everybody is going to be in data analytics. They're going to be in business intelligence or data scientists. We, when you used to build companies before, you would bring in, like for a business like ours, we have subject matter expertise. So this would be like somebody that used to work at AT&T would come and work for us. And then we would hire um, a relationship person. We would hire a, uh, somebody that would come in to, uh, to do a lot of the, like the, the low-level accounting side. When you see the power that data has brought into our organization, and we use every type of AI tool, every large language model, everything that you could possibly use to make our business more efficient because we're in the efficiency business, it's vitally important if I'm your age, um, and I know you guys look at me and think I'm your age, I'm, I'm actually slightly older than you, but uh, being, being uh, if I was your age, the number one thing I would want to know is, what is the future of hiring going to be? And right now, as I mentioned before, of our next 100 hires, I would say the vast majority of them are going to be data scientists, data analytics, and business intelligence people. Wow, all right, so get his card after this, folks. Um, Fascinating. I mean, I read a thing, a Forbes article, or was something online recently, and mentioned it had pulled a bunch of CEOs and founders and, you know, folks who, you know, portend to know what they're talking about in terms of the business world. And they, uh, most of them, a great majority of them said that within two years, half of all jobs will become you know, irrelevant. Now this was sort of maybe clickbaity, so sort of temper that when you try to base your entire life off of that information and also go fact check that, because I don't know, I'm working at a nonprofit, what do I know? Uh, this isn't Snopes up here in real time. Point is, like, it's interesting to hear all of these businesses hiring for, right, data scientists, I don't want to sound pedantic, but you know, business analysts and these people who are going to be taking these large caches of information making sense of them, right, to help fuel the company and help fuel the world. Thanks, Kevin, appreciate that. Megan, what did I leave out with uh, my horrible bio uh, for you? I apologize, I feel like I gave people what you do and where you work, but fill in a little bit more of the cracks and flesh out um, you know, who Megan is and how you kind of tie into the theme of business analytics. I wanna hear a little bit more about Interloop as well. Interloop as well. 
Sure, you did a fantastic job, by the way. Um, I'm Megan, hi everyone. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan originally, did my undergrad at Michigan and was working after undergrad and was furloughed with COVID. And so I was like, now's the time to go back to school to make myself more marketable to the industry I really wanna be in, which is the tech industry. Wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I was a political science undergrad and had a very heavy analytical statistical focus in the research that I did and had a knack for it. So I was like, I can pursue this, um, but was kind of having trouble getting my foot in the door with a truly like technology company uh, because my degree said political science. So then I was looking for a one year program because I didn't want to be out of the workforce for more than a year. And I found CFC. Uh, my family has been down to the low country for many vacations and my cousin is from here. His wife is from here. Um, so knew that this is where I wanted to be. So that's how I ended up at CFC MBA. And then through connections, through my mentor in the program actually, got connected with the tech center and Interloop and started working as an intern in the second semester of my MBA and then went full time after graduating. So I was really able to hone what I was learning in class with real time you know, business cases and Interloop was just the fantastic spot for me and couldn't, couldn't be happier. What do you do currently on a day-to-day -day basis at Interloop? <clears throat> I do something different every day, which is <laughs> such a hard thing to grasp, but I work with clients in all different industries. We work with people in the political sphere, financial, clinical research, manufacturing and distributing, any type of industry really you can think of. And they come to us with some type of business problem. I'm trying to get this information from you know four or five systems and I just want it in one spot so I can look at it. And so we do kind of the data plumbing underneath to bring all of those systems and that data together and then we report on it. And that's mostly my focus is in business intelligence. So I work in Power BI almost every day and I bring multiple systems together into a dashboard or a report that's visually appealing, consumable to the viewers, and easier to understand. Because a lot of times the systems that people are using, whether it's marketing or financial, don't have the most UX or user-friendly interface to create reports in. And so design plays a huge aspect in that. So I get to be creative and critical and like work with numbers and then pick some colors that look good on a dashboard too. So it's great. So I love that you kind of came from a political science background or you didn't quite know what you wanted to do and how you were going to end up where you are now. I think that sort of fascinates me. And I think when we've got, you know, the bright minds of tomorrow here, I know you all may think you know exactly what you're doing tomorrow, but, you know, I, there's a possibility you don't or there's a possibility something comes out of left field. And again, don't want to sound pedantic, but there's no telling, you know, exactly what the future holds and your interests may change, your passions may change, and they may happen to serendipitously intersect with opportunities you didn't foresee. I want to know a little bit more about Kevin, your story, because I know you were on sort of a circuitous path that brought you to where you are now. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, my story is terrible considering <laughs> like both of theirs. So I, uh, I was, um, I was a telephone lineman. So if you guys know what that is, it's a guy that climbs telephone poles. I, uh, I didn't exactly grad. This is going out on, this is on the radio? All right, I did radio, graduate yeah, high school. <laughs> I did graduate high school, we think. Uh, but um, yeah, I just wasn't, I wasn't very, education wasn't a huge aspect of my life. Um, 
I grew up in Philadelphia. My dad was a, a work for Bell Telephone. Um, so yeah, if anybody has, I'm trying to get the score of the Phillies game and I'm struggling here. So <laughs> somebody can, what? Ranger Suarez for the win. Uh, but um, I was, uh, yeah, so I was a lineman. It was the greatest job in the world. It's um, um, like being up on a, like, you know, 22 feet off the ground for most of your L day. Lineman is the name of it? A lineman is just, just think of a telephone repairman. Right. That's what I was, and uh, and it was a it was an amazing job, and um, I turned that into a business, and that business grew into a big business, and then we sold that business into private equity, and uh, my wife and I came down here to retire. We have four kids, and um, we love Charleston, so we came here to retire, and three weeks into retirement, just for all of you guys that are like grinding away, and you're like, what happens at the end? My retirement lasted three weeks, and I was more miserable than I'd have ever been in my entire life. And um, I've met the founder of SIB. And so I went in and I said, I can probably help you grow this business. And he was nice enough to let me come in. Uh, I brought a private equity group to buy him out of his business, which is what he wanted. And then we've grown that business from a little million dollar company to uh, a $500 million company in a few years. And, um, and a lot of it is because of really leveraging technology to solve very complicated problems that our clients have, so. And dial deeper into what exactly you all do to leverage that technology to solve customers' problems. Like walk us through a multi-step process that a, sure. a typical you know, uh, solution might look like at, yeah, at so, your company. So a regular client for us would be, it's a, it's a company that owns, maybe they own 100 hotels, or they own 50 senior living groups, or they own 6,000 Taco Bells. There's a lot of Taco Bells. Um, so you're one of those companies, and you are focused, good companies focus on three or four major things that is going to move the needle for them. So in hospitality, it's easy. They focus on occupancy. We've got to get people in the rooms. They focus on labor. We have to have people clean the rooms. And anybody that watches the news understands how complicated le uh, that level of, uh, of labor is. It's very difficult. And with the, the, uh, through COVID and people um, uh, going out of the workforce, it made it much more complicated. But they focus on occupancy, labor, and then they'll focus on, for uh, hotels, it would be like real estate. Nobody cares about what they're paying for their hosted Wi-Fi or what they're paying for the, um, their medical, uh, their little sharp spin that they have there from Stericycle or their dumpster, or what they're paying for their linens and laundry. So what our company does is we have about 100,000 properties under management. And so we use the data that we pull from 100,000 locations. We put that in so that if you have a hotel in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I know exactly to the penny what you should be paying for your Sharpspin. I know what you should be paying for World Cinema, which is like the TV service. I know what you should be paying for your dumpster. I know how often it should be getting picked up. I know how much waste you should be uh, putting on there. And um, what we try to tell our clients is it's not just about saving money for them. It's also giving them a lot of business intelligence in. So if you have two like stores, and, and think of two hotels, and one of them is producing dramatically more waste than the other, there's probably something else that you need to look at. And so our clients 
will habitually tell us that they love the fact that we save them millions of dollars, but the data that we provide them helps them run their businesses better. And it also shows who are the good operators because a lot of hotels and a lot of the businesses that we operate in, they have like a third party management team. Mm. So when we come in and we say, look at your same store costs, the ones that are typically a lot higher will also have the more problems with them because their, their management team isn't watching the bottom line as much as they should. Interesting. And then you pay yourselves with the money saved? Is that right? Correct. So we have to be really good at what we do because we only charge if we're successful. So if we save somebody $1,000, we're going to keep between 350 and 500 of that for the next three years. That's our rack rate cost that we do on there. A lot of people, our clients in particular, will look at that and say, why wouldn't I do this? And the reason that they come up with why wouldn't they do it is because they want to spend time on something else. So it's our job to say, we operate in the background and you need to focus on this side of the business because nobody else at your organization is. Love that, thank you. Uh, Chris, tell me a little bit about what you do and how it may, uh, you know, illustrate for someone, the, the uninitiated perhaps, how, you know, nonprofits can actually be a little bit more business-like than sometimes people think, right? I mean, I work at a nonprofit and it's not, you know, it's not, it's not like there's no money coming or going. In fact, in many ways, the revenue that's generated or the funds that are solicited um, are being processed and counted, much like a, a for-profit organization, maybe sometimes more closely, frankly. Tell me a little bit about, I mean, you and I spoke out in the lobby about how you actually are like super interested in audits and tracking money. And we were, I mean, I feel like we were waxing poetic about, you know, how it can be sort of part and parcel to storytelling. And it is kind of the narrative of a business or a nonprofit when you keep track of dollars and cents and data. Talk to me a little bit more about that. So with entering the nonprofit world, I always thought and looked at nonprofits as if they were entrepreneurship in spirit. Like, I started this organization, I'm the owner of it, it's a nonprofit. But once entering this world, they do have those grassroots startups where you believe that I started it and I own it and if the funds are coming in, I can do what I wanna do. But in order for a nonprofit to be successful, you have to have a Chris in place or one of our future MBAs in place who has that business background and that professionalism that will come in and say, if you want this nonprofit to withstand now and years to come when you're no longer the CEO or no longer here, you have to put those business practices in place. So if we are fundraising and having campaigns and asking people to donate and bring funds in, then we have to be responsible to let the community know and any business that gives to us see that we are serious about one, what our mission is, and that we use the funds to complete those missions. And if Shakora is our community, then that is who is getting the money. As a nonprofit, 
most people will look at you and try to figure out if you're a nonprofit, then why do you have all this money? What are you doing with this money? And if you're just using the money to buy yourself good cars and you're not actually making a difference in the community, then how do you stand up as a business? So as the business analyst, I'm there to kind of bring a reality check. This is what we need to do so that in the future, we stand up in the community and they know that Metanoia is a nonprofit and they're doing good things. We follow processes and we make sure that we are fiscally um, responsible. And it's not an entrepreneur. Like the board can actually fire the CEO who started the nonprofit. And if we lose the person that started it, then what happens to everyone else that still works there when we all counted on the founder who's now gone and this nonprofit is still here and it needs to continue with the mission, so. More than ever before, I, you know, I hear it, I read about it, I see it day to day. Folks who want to work for a business or start their own business or graft onto an existing enterprise want to make a meaningful impact in the world. Right, and that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Certainly a way to do that in the private sector and there's a record high number of you know, social impact companies, and we all know about social entrepreneurship, and certainly, you know, we're familiar with benefit corporations and looking at business with a sustainability mindset. Check out the Good Business Summit by LLF if you want to learn more about some of those high road business practices. February 22nd, Charleston Music Hall. Um, thank you. You too, if you're listening in your car, 96.3 Ohm FM, check out goodbusinesssummit.org. I'm just gonna pop in random ads, right? But they're all gonna be community-powered and community-centric, so we can do it on this community-powered radio. Anyway, back to you, Chris. Given that people are trying to move the needle in a positive direction for their communities or for their world, you know, a lot of them coming out of an MBA program, they wanna start a business or, or, or you know, latch onto an existing business, and that's all well and good. That's one possible route for them, particularly if that business is doing stuff that aligns with their virtues and their values and their personal mission. But they may wanna say, you know what, what about a nonprofit? And there's a lot of, I think, nonprofits out there that are hiring for positions which benefit from a lot of the skills that folks are learning in the MBA program. So. Tell me if you would, and tell everybody here if you would, specifically what you do on a day-to-day -day basis so they can start to like envision what that path might look like for them. So on a day-to-day -day basis, I think my main priority would be to make sure that we are within budget daily um, because our budget determines how everyone gets paid and how we pour funds back into the community. So we have different programs that are budgeted funds and have to use this, these funds and stay within those budgets so that we don't overextend ourselves or spend money that we do not have. So it's my responsibility to sit with um, directors and make sure that let's use our youth program um, for something, make sure that if we have 10 coloring books already, we're not continuously buying coloring books just because we love the kids and we wanna pour into them. We have to make sure that it's within budget and if someone does come to audit our books, they are not going to say, 
we continuously give you money and you're constantly buying things over and over, but we just did a tour of your facilities and I see that there are 100 coloring books sitting here and no one has used these coloring books. Like, how are you building leaders when you can't even manage a budget? And that is where a business analyst comes in or maybe even a management firm where they can say, you as directors focus on, you focus on the youth because that is where your heart is and let the business analysts focus on your spending and budgeting and making sure that you have the right supplies and we continue to be um, successful. So daily, that's what I do. And I make sure that when you are requesting funds and hiring different people that we are hiring people that are qualified so that it doesn't put us in a position where something happens and say a lawsuit happens or something like that. When you are mission focused, sometimes you forget about the things in the background that could happen because you aren't taking those extra steps to make sure I'm following rules and following laws. Love that. Thank you, Chris. Who here in the house, just to like ground things, is interested in this stuff professionally? Wants to maybe explore how they might be able to move into business analytics in some way, shape, or form? Just by a show of hands. I mean, you don't need to be like confirmed I'm going to go down that path, but it's like if this conversation gets real good, I may start applying for some jobs in this business. You're all hired. Okay, yeah, okay. So Ke Kevin's hiring people. <laughs> Kevin Flatters, SIB, you heard it here. It's, uh, it's recorded, and uh, audio recordings hold up in court, according to me. So yeah, you're, uh, you're all hired. That's great. You should have been Say raising it. your hands here in the front. Um, that's on you. What's the number one piece of professional development advice you'd give to these folks standing in your shoes as local business analytics maestros, particularly those of uh, you out there who have raised their hands? They're, they're, they're looking for you know, that, that, that number one piece of professional development advice. We'll start with Megan. Sure, I'd say work experience is invaluable, whether it's an internship or a consulting project or something like that, anything that you can do to get actual hands-on experience with a true business case speaks volumes and then talking about that to people is fantastic. And then the second piece is having this mentality to fail fast. With business intelligence, a lot of the, what I do is trial and error every day, and most of the time, a lot of the time, things fail. But you have to be able to ask for help when you can't figure it out. So if you're going to fail, do it quickly, and then find an alternate route or find another resource to make it work. Love that. Thank you, Megan. Kevin? Yeah, that's really... that's. It's going to be a lot better than my answer, but that was really good. What I would tell you is a little bit different. I would tell everybody to work on your EQ as much as you possibly can. Everybody has to understand that back in the olden black and white TV days when I was like your age, the whole idea of higher education was you were getting something that people didn't have. So you had this knowledge that people didn't have. You had access to things. And I'm going to joke and say, like, you knew what the Pythagorean theorem was, and that would help you if you were a mason or something like that. Today, everybody has everything. So what is going to set you apart is how well you interact with other people. And interacting with other people, let me just tell you, so you're, you're, you guys are all here, you're all 
I would say all of you, except for you, you're all smarter than me. Um, and uh, I'm just kidding, you're smarter than me too. But um, a, a big thing is making sure that you have true empathy for, for other people and that you really work on social skills. And I know that that sounds like, well, that sounds really easy. I work on my social skills all the time. You don't work on them enough. So working on them is making sure that you, you can have like a regular relationship with your friends and that you can, um, you can talk to people that are your peers. You can talk to people that are uh, superiors to you from a, uh, like a work standpoint and not, um, not what we used to call like humada humada the answer. So that is, from my standpoint, for you, you guys are all very intelligent if you're at this college and you're all very intelligent if you're looking at getting into an MBA program. Spend a lot of time working on your EQ and your interpersonal skills. It's the one thing that you, you, you can't really pick up and learn. And in a day and age where like, you can Google the Pythagorean theorem, am I saying that? Is it the P Pythagorean or Pythagoras? All right, Pythagorean theorem. So I think the fact that you can, was the person who came up with the theorem. There we right? go, see? So I wasn't joking. I didn't graduate high school. But I have so, an AI. I, <laughs> but what I will tell you I have you an is, AI chip in my brain, actually, implanted, <laughs> so I can't take full credit. But when you, when you have a device in your pocket that can tell you everything about everything, the, in, the, that, that learning that you're doing, it's still very important. I'm not saying don't go to college, but what I'm saying is it is going to become, the playing field will be leveled a lot more, and a lot of the people that are going to do better are going to be the ones that have worked on their, uh, just their interpersonal skills. It's, it's unbelievably important, and it's truly how you can get ahead. Uh, it's what gets you hired. Um, I'll tell you, I probably have hired about 1,500 people I don't know if I've ever looked at a GPA. I don't know if I've ever looked at, um, uh, like it is important for some of the roles that we're filling that they have certain levels of certifications and things like that, but every single person I'm hiring, if the, that person comes in and I'm like, that is a person where if I saw them at the line at Chipotle, I would look the other way so they don't see me, that person doesn't get hired. And that's just like, that's about all the, the insights I can give you from a telephone repairman. Love that, thank you. Um, by the way, if you're looking for a locally owned alternative to Chipotle, Chipotle has great burritos, but I've got a few options for you. Headquartered right here, and you'll help that circular economy by choosing to spend your dollars there. 45 cents to the 15 cents to the dollar that would stay here if you spend it at Chipotle. That was weird, I don't know where that came from. I'm not like anti-Chipotle, we're just slow country local <laughs> first, right? So if you have an option that's local, choose that first. All right, off of my soapbox. Chris, number one piece of professional advice. It could be anything under the sun, business analytics related or otherwise. I'm going to steal from them and just Do piggyback it. off of what they said because um, that is really important. Number one, be humble and know that you can learn from anyone. So continue to learn and don't place yourself or your value above anyone else. Um, everyone's role is important and Megan talked about failing. Um, failing is the first attempt in learning. So if you never fail, then you never learn. Failure is not bad. Failure helps me grow. Failure teaches me what I need to know. That was said by Sean, who just kicked himself off Survivor last night, if you caught that episode. Two people have quit Survivor in the first nine days. It's unprecedented. I've seen every episode. 
but I do have friends in social skills, I swear. Um, all right, let's ground it back in the low country because selfishly, and I know we're getting a Q&A first, I know my colleague here, Mars, is about to tell me we gotta start getting to questions from the audience, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask this one last question. We're a local economic development nonprofit. We don't wanna lose all you fine people out there to other cities, other metropolitan areas. We want you to stay right here, grow your own businesses, make existing businesses that are headquartered in the low country stronger, okay? So I wanna know from you all what you love about doing business here in the low country, or what's like funky about it, what's unique about it? Are you raising families here? Like try to you know, look through the lens of, of doing what you do but look through the lens of doing it here and how that maybe you know, flavors what you do and what you like about it, or be honest, maybe what you don't like about it. I'm curious to know a little bit about the business analytics industry and how it's maybe a different industry here in the low country, or maybe it's not. Talk to me about what you love about Charleston, what you're not so sure about Charleston. Like, so these business leaders of tomorrow can kind of envision what it's like to do business here in the low country of South Carolina, if that makes sense. We'll start with you, Meg, and work our way down. Sure. I feel like I'm in a bit of a bubble because I work in the tech center, so I'm surrounded by tech companies with a lot of analysts. Um, the Charleston Tech Center on Morrison Drive? Yeah, right okay. by Revelry. Cool. Um, great for happy hour after work. And um, But it's great. And the Charleston tech scene is growing, and we're trying to help, help it grow as well. Um, but I love living and working here in the low country, it's night and day difference to the first job that I had out of undergrad, I was commuting 45 minutes both ways. You know, the it was a very old school, you know, blue collar company that believed that um, utilization and productivity equated to butts and seats from nine to five and um, just really bringing in kind of a more modern approach to the workforce here and I, greatly appreciate it. Awesome, love that, thank you, Megan. If you have questions, by the way, please start lining up right over here, just right over here. Feel free to walk over here and we'll get to you in about five minutes, just so I'm not running around with the microphone. You can start right here and just line up along the wall, if you don't mind. All right, Kevin. Sure, so. Don't ask me to repeat the question, because I don't even know what I asked. <laughs> well, I'll tell it was, you. It was, it, was, it was, I was floundering, if I may. Hey, listen, <laughs> imagine going through high school with that name. That's why I never made it through, so. Uh, Growing up in Philadelphia and living in Philadelphia and going back to Philadelphia, one thing I'm always struck by is everybody is old, is old. And I'm is like old. old. <laughs> I'm considered like a young whippersnapper in Philadelphia because it's just, it's an older city. There's people more ingrained in the way that their thought process is. There's also people that are very ingrained in like the way that they do things. So if I had to say one thing that I like much more working down here is it's a younger population and they have better, faster, quicker ideas. And um, from my standpoint, I found that um, like if you come to my office, you will see I went from being one of the youngest people in my old company and I am by far the oldest person that works at, at SIB, I think. So there, there is an energy to bringing people in, and when you walk, all you have to do is walk down the streets of Charleston to see that there, there's a big populace of young people, and that is a, an incredibly valuable asset to have. And unfortunately, what's happening here within the organ, within this, this region is, you guys all see it, it's unbelievably expensive to, to live here. So what we try to do is make sure that we provide a living wage to everybody that works at our office because 
I am one of those old-fashioned, terrible, stodgy people that I do want to have people in the office. I think the osmosis that you get when you're trying to build a culture is so much better when you have people that are all in an office. We have a chef. We make sure that we um, uh, provide food for, for all of our people because we feel like that's an in incredibly important part of showing up to work is, is knowing that you're going to be taken care of, not just financially, but we want to make sure that we're taking care of other aspects of your life as well. Love that. Thank you. Um, Chris, you, unlike our other participants on stage, born and raised in Mount Pleasant. I'm curious to know your perspective. Born and raised in Mount Pleasant. Um, growing up here, Charleston was just that. It's home, it's Charleston. I know nothing about downtown, about the historic area. I don't want to come down here. There are too many tours. Then you go away and you're just like, I'm not coming back home. Who wants to go back home? But everyone talks about Charleston so much. I made the plunge and decided after a year, out of college, I'm coming back home. And I came back home and I made it my quest to learn Charleston, to be a tourist in my own town and see how valuable this place is. And now working for this nonprofit, I get to do something I love that hones in on my skills, but I also get to impact the community and make Charleston a better place. Because people think about Charleston and the only thing they really think about is downtown. But the low country is evolved in so many ways. And we have Mount Pleasant, Daniel Allen, North Charleston, Goose Creek, Somerville that are all unique in their own ways. And everywhere doesn't get the credit that it should get. So being able to work for a company that, one, focuses on the community, and two, looks to me to make sure that they're doing everything right, that's a win-win. Love it. Give it up for our panelists. That was beautiful. I see no one has taken the bait and walked up right here to the stage. It's a great time to practice your social skills that Kevin <laughs> Flounders recommends you polish up. Um, maybe you've got really great social skills. They don't need polishing. Come show them off. Right? Now no one's going to come up after that. Please come up here. It's a great opportunity to ask these folks questions one-on-one. -on -one. We're going to have to actually like leave right at 7, so you're not going to get as much mingling time after this as you did beforehand. Come on up. Ask some questions. Stand right up here. I'll give you the microphone. While we're getting people up here, and I swear radio listeners, they are just jumping we got one. up here. <laughs> Keep in mind, this is 96.3 Ohm FM. Thank you all for being here and listening. This is a product, a project, a program of Low Country Local First. Again, a local economic development nonprofit. We do it in partnership with MBA program at College of Charleston, as well as Queen Street Playhouse. And there's a bunch of other community partners who have made this possible and all of our other work at Low Country Local First possible. It's all about, at the end of the day, helping out local independent businesses, small mom and pop shops, big corporations, as long as they're headquartered here, they're raising families here, they're creating jobs here, and by here I mean the eight counties of the low country, we wanna get to know them, we wanna parlay their stories into something everybody can get behind, because we believe that powers a circular economy and a robust, inclusive, vibrant community, okay? So go out and support some local businesses on your way home. We're gonna hand it over to our First of many questions, the rest of you can just come up here and get behind this fine gentleman. Um, and I'm gonna hand over the mic. Please just introduce yourself and go ahead and ask your question. Cool, thanks. Uh, yeah, my name's Sawyer Umstead. Uh, my question is for Kevin. Um, 
just based on like the current macroeconomic environment, um, can you maybe talk a little bit about how companies were so focused on grow, grow, grow revenues, and now they're more focused maybe on capital efficiency and cutting costs and how that's impacted SIB? Well, we never want to like hope for a really bad economy, but when you have uncertainty in the economic forecast the way that we do, we have this incredibly slow-moving iceberg of eventually we're going to be in a recession, eventually we're going to be in a recession. Really smart CEOs already called this. They said that the recession isn't going to come here as quick because the American consumer is amazing. They're amazing. You're all amazing. Congratulations. Give yourself a, 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 a round of applause because we really do consume and, and we, we have incredible purchasing power. A lot of your parents, and I don't know any of them, but a lot of your parents probably have, um, they, they grew up in a time where it was a lot easier than what you're growing up in. And I'm one of them. Like when I, when, when I was in high school, none of us worried about getting jobs. You, you worried about getting a really good job. Um, I think today, knowing that you're going to be competing, not you guys here, but like people of your generation are competing with people my age to get jobs at like really like at, at entry level piece places. It's, it's, it's much more stressful and the anxiety that your generation has is it's warranted. Um, but when we see that, that, that big economic iceberg coming towards us, it really does have a, a rubber band effect on, um, I'll look at just private equity. The past decade of private equity was, if buying 10 car washes is good, we should buy 700 of them. And it wasn't an idea about, can we make, uh, make them more efficient? It's like, no, just buy 700 more of them. I think the next decade of private equity and, and also just business in general is all going to be about maximizing your assets of, of what you have. And unfortunately, what that also means is leveraging technology and business intelligence in their own business so that they don't need to hire as many people. And I hate to kind of be the bearer of bad news, not for, again, not for anybody here, but we have a captive in India that has a hundred people that work there. As soon as we kind of figure out the, the last pieces of, of how AI is going to work, that is probably going to be cut in half. And, um, and as we continue to like become more and more efficient, we don't have to do, uh, we're not going to be doing layoffs or anything like that, but we could grow our business by 300% and hire 10% more people. And um, I don't think we're the only company. I don't think we're the smartest people in the world. I think people are leveraging all of the things that you should be studying so that um, you become an asset that, that remains. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Next question from the audience. Hi, my name is Gina. Um, like Sawyer, I'm a part of the MBA cohort currently at CFC. Um, first of all, thanks for all these insights into your all's jobs. Um, we really appreciate that. Um, it was interesting to me what you said, Kevin, um, because everything we hear right now is that our prospects for jobs are really good because the current situation is that there's more employees than employers. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of um, great to here you acknowledge that our start isn't easy just because of that situation. Um, do you have any, any tips, any advice for us how we can um, kind of 
strengthen our position when we apply to a job. And as you said, our direct competitors are people um, with different experiences, or more more experience, and um, who are at a different um, point in life and at a different age. I think a big part of it is make sure that you're never work for somebody that you don't think truly cares about you. Uh, and you can find that out during the interview process, the way that they interview you, the way that they talk to you during that interview process, and more importantly, how they treat you uh, in like interview two, interview three, things like that. You never want to work for somebody that doesn't have empathy towards the process that you're going through. It's the hardest thing in the world going out and getting your first job. And if you don't sit across the table from somebody who understands that and has like, you can feel that they are feeling some of your trepidation about like the, the answers that you're giving and things like that, you probably don't want to work there. Um, and be selective about that first job because that first job can, it tends to be a, a place that you work a lot longer than you ever anticipate. A lot of people say, gonna cut my teeth here and then I'm going to go on. Sometimes that works, but a lot of times you end up staying at your first job for a long time and make sure that you made a right decision on there. As far as setting yourself apart, it's exactly what I said before. I think a lot of people that are gonna be hiring are going to be hiring solely based off of your interpersonal skills because it is very hard to differentiate yourself from a somebody that has a 3.8 and somebody that has a 3.4. Do you guys still do, is it still like that or is it? Okay, good, all right. So nobody cares, nobody cares. And, um, and it's like vitally important that maybe if you're going to get a job at Microsoft and um, just to get the interview, you need to have that piece. But if you're gonna stay in the low country and you're going to work at, at, a, country, at a, um, a company that's headquartered here, you're probably gonna work for somebody that has more my ideals of is this person gonna fit in culturally with our organization and do we want to be around that person? That's, that's how we make the vast majority of our hiring and I think a lot of people are in the same boat. Again, if you're going to be a developer for Google, they don't care about any of that stuff because there is no culture. The culture is you're going to, you're, going to, the, you're just gonna provide a, a, a service for them and you're not part of like the organization. But in most places where I think you're going to end up working, that interpersonal side is going to be incredibly valuable. Megan and Chris, does that speak to you all at all? Do you have anything to add to that? I think that that is very true. Um, you do need to have at least, I would say, five of the skills that this job is asking for. But just remember that any position that you take, you're going to have to be trained but your personality and how you interact with others is going to really speak to who you are and if you will fit into um, a company's culture. So that is like definitely good advice. Like just be a good person and know how to um, interact. I fully agree with both the other panelists. I think ju just as much as you're being interviewed, you're also interviewing the company to see if you would be happy there because you spend a lot of time at work, so you might as well enjoy who you're working with. Love it. For those of you who have asked questions, and we've got at least time for one more, you can send your prospective employers like the last three minutes of this podcast episode, and they'll be so impressed by your, your knowledge. Um, so... 
That's just getting people running into the line of questions. Appreciate that. Uh, we've got time, I think, for one more, as I just mentioned. Um, introduce yourself and ask your question, if you don't mind. Hi, I'm Kate. Thank you. <laughs> uh, my question pertaining to what was just said. Oh, sorry. Um, what would be all three of your guys' best advice on how to work on our social skills? Who wants to start? All right, best advice, work on your social skills. So it is, it is so important, right? I mean, I, I, we've talked kind of about this a little bit uh, during the other talks as well. Like, there's a lot of overlap with these discussions, and I think that's a good thing. The themes, the topics are important, the trajectories are a little bit different, but we sort of all need the same sort of foundational understanding of how to best tell our own story and to convince the prospective employer why that story would benefit um, and might align with the organization. So yeah, how do, how do people actually do this, right? It's like, obviously, maybe don't look at your phones for 10 hours a day. We gotta, like, we gotta fight a lot of societal pressures, probably, <laughs> out there. So we're not gonna figure it all out right now, but maybe give the top, in the last you know, two minutes we have, the top one or two tips you might have for helping folks brush up on those soft skills that are gonna help them differentiate themselves from some of their competition as they look for jobs. I'm a total introvert. Um, and sometimes my face is just in a resting mode. <laughs> um, That's radio friendly. I appreciate that. It's, it's in a resting mode. And I found that some people thought that I was not approachable. So the first part of that is taking accountability for who you are and finding that one person in the room that you open up a conversation and you want to ask those hard questions like, when you saw me, did I look approachable? Um, and they're probably going to lie to you, but it starts a conversation and it gets um, things going. So I would just say do everything afraid and do things that make you uncomfortable because once you become uncomfortable, then you get into a rhythm and a habit of now I can just walk up to people and start having a conversation and it doesn't have to be you telling your life story, but talk about the weather or compliment them on a shirt or just ask them, how is the traffic getting here? Just anything so that it strikes a conversation and it teaches you how to start conversations and just um, be social, like interacting with people if you are an introvert is hard. So. That's just it. Just own who you are and be truthful with yourself and then start your journey. Beautiful. Thank you, Chris. Kevin? So, was it Kate? Kate, what I would tell you is it's one of the hardest things to do as far as starting, but it's actually incredibly easy. You, you, you have to care. So when you ask somebody about themselves, you have to care about the answer and then you have to ask follow-up questions about it. And it seems like it's like, well, sure, I think I do that. If you really look, a lot of people don't. They're like, hey, how was your weekend? My weekend was great. And you can't be that way. And you can't fake it either. And don't try to fake it, because faking it doesn't actually benefit the world. So when, when I talk about working on your social skills, a big part of it is like caring about the people that you are going to be interacting with and not trying to fake it. Like there's, I think there's books read that, that people have written about like how you can basically fake being a decent person. Another thing you could do is you could just be a decent person. And part of that is actually caring about the questions that you're, answer, that you're asking 
and listening about the answers. People do want to tell you about themselves. So really a big part of it is like if you go in and you're having that, that um, initial interview, you find out where they're from. You, you have to also know, like try to know as many things as you possibly can, and that's part of this education system that you're in. Become a Renaissance person. So that if somebody says, oh, I'm from Cape Girardeau, uh, St. Louis, you can talk about sports and you can talk about the Cardinals and things like that, but you can also talk about something that, that is like more in that region of like, what is it like growing up in the Midwest? Like, is it different? And if you ask a complicated question like that, that people have to be like, yeah, I don't know. I think you immediately have broken down uh, like a big barrier there. So ask a lot of questions, care about the answer, and then ask a lot of follow-up questions. And you would be shocked at how you can, like I've been to three Super Bowls. I do not have tickets for three Super Bowls. You can get anything you want by just being a, a good talker and listener. And what I would say is like, it's one of the most amazing superpowers that you can have. And the thing that is like nobody talks about, you, you can't fake caring. So actually care when you ask somebody how their weekend was. How was your weekend, by the way? I had an amazing time. Is there, what'd you do? <laughs> Slept. <laughs> <laughs> you really are an introvert. So. <laughs> That, although sleeping is a great part of the weekend, uh, but like when you, when you sleep too much, so like what's your, how long will you sleep where you say, this was good, ooh, I went a little overboard? About six hours. That's not sleeping. That is. That six hours is nothing. Six hours is it. You gotta try doing eight. You gotta try eight? doing nine. I gotta analyze the books at Metanoia. <laughs> I gotta life coach my clients. I gotta run after Girl Scouts. Six hours is perfect. All right. Well, we're gonna come back to that. Okay. <laughs> Love that. Um, could you imagine if Kate was like had left halfway through the response about how it's so important to listen to answers? No, she's Kate's here. She's fully engaged. Um, Thank you for that question, by the way. Um, one of the, f the three brave few, so I appreciate that. And to close us out, Megan, um, what are your thoughts? I really agree with Kevin. I think being able to talk to people and actually listen, even if it's you know two minutes at the beginning of a client call to say, oh, I remembered you went on vacation last week. How was your trip? Where did you go? I heard you, I remember you went hiking. How was it? Things like that. People really clip into that sense of you know person and you're not, just a person on the screen, you're actually a person. And you know, I like to say that we manage a lot of data, but we also manage a lot of personalities. People have a lot of opinions about how they want things done, so being able to have a conversation and maybe talk someone down and let's come back to earth and let's really figure out what's going wrong is a really, really important skill to have. Give it up for Megan, Kevin, and Chris, if you will. Thank you so much to Interloop, SIB, and Metanoia for parting with some of their brightest minds for this. We appreciate those firms, that nonprofit. We appreciate our community partners who are making this possible. Queen Street Playhouse, the beautiful historic home that uh, has provided the backdrop for this evening and the other Small Talks Big Ideas with Steve live events. This is the last one of the year. We hope for many more in the future, but that's uh, to a degree up to Seton Brown, so make sure you bend his ear about how great these events were. Um, 
I know I've appreciated this opportunity. This podcast is usually just me in the studio at home uh, for a couple hours every week where I get to kind of pull away from my normal job as Director of Economic Development at Low Country Local First and talk one-on-one with the fine men, women, the folks who are doing amazing things in our local independent business ecosystem. So appreciate you all being here. I hope to see you all as part of a local independent business here in the Low Country at some point. If not, I still wish you great success. Um, And again, just thank you so much. Please give it up to Queen Street Playhouse and OM 96.3 FM. And if you're listening on the radio right now, appreciate you, uh, you tuning in as well. Listen, we are a few minutes after our, uh, our end time, so we have to unfortunately kind of forcefully evict you from the space. You have to be gone in the next few minutes. But thank you so much. If you want to ask a question or two of our panelists, I'm sure they'll stick around for a few seconds. But otherwise, thank you all for being here, and have a great night. Be safe.